from SquarePeg. I'm Imogen. And today, well, let's go back in time to 1997. Bill Clinton has just been sworn into his second term. For the first time ever, a computer defeats a chess world champion in a match, in this case, IBM's Deep Blue. And in Melbourne, Australia, a new tech company called Seek had just launched to connect job seekers and businesses using the internet, which at the time was a fairly radical idea. You know, maybe in Australia, out of a you know, population of 22, 23 million people, you would have been getting up somewhere between half a million and a million internet users. And basically, we got two questions from recruitment firms that were trying to pitch to or companies to, to place their jobs on Seek. It's like, you know, question one is what's the internet? And question two is who the fuck is Seek? <laughs> this is Paul Bassett. In the Australian tech community, at least, he's kind of a legend. His story is the embodiment of what many founders hope to accomplish, which is to take this big leap of faith, build a company and come out the other side with a career and a team you can be proud of. Today, he spends his time investing in new founders who are taking that same leap of faith that he did. I know Paul because he's my boss. We work together at SquarePeg, the venture capital firm he co-founded after he left Seek. And together, we're going to talk about what it was really like to build a $6 billion company and a bunch of stuff he learned along the way. Stay with us. Now that I know you, it's kind of shocking to me that you did such a traditional degree. Was that intentional? Well, not really. It was more default. So I reckon I sort of defaulted into studying law. So it sounds awful. Like I got the marks in inverted commas. I was like, yeah, I don't, didn't know what to do. So I studied, I thought I'd study law commerce. I had much more probably of an interest in business, you know, that sort of stuff than, than in law. In fact, if I think back to my time at uni, I'd say that five years was the most fun five years of my life. But actually <laughs> the bit in the week between, you know, going out with friends and stuff like that with, you know, called lectures and shoots I didn't particularly enjoy. So actually the study of neither law and commerce I, I didn't love. Through uni, I assumed that I would do something else other than work as a lawyer. I didn't really know what that something else was. And all my friends were sort of applying for graduate jobs. And I was like, no, 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 I'll do something else. And then I couldn't work out what it was. So in the end, I applied for a graduate job and, and ended up working as a lawyer for six, six and a half years. So actually, you know, the bits of it that I found frustrating because they don't necessarily suit my temperament, but there are lots of bits that I really enjoyed and, and learned an enormous amount. Unlike lots of recovering lawyers who described the profession in terms of long working hours, disgruntled clients and narcotics, Paul mostly recalls three things. The first is that the working environment was a gift. Arnold Bloch-Liebler, the firm that Paul joined, was known for heaping responsibility onto graduates, giving them the opportunity to learn as fast as possible, and subsequently, rising up the ranks faster. To many who work in startups, this environment is unsurprisingly familiar. The second was that he enjoyed the discipline, particularly of drafting legal docs, which required methodical, logical thinking. And the third was the people. In Paul's career, he hired over 800 people directly, and as the co-CEO at Seek, led a company of over 4,000 people by the time he left. But ABL was where Paul learned the art of people management. Not with his colleagues or his direct reports, but with clients. Yeah, I mean, there, there was some unique personalities. I mean, one was Ted Lustig, who was sort of a Melbourne property developer. I would have been 23 or 24, and Ted, Ted would have been well into his 70s. And I remember him one day um, trying to get onto our boss, Joe, and couldn't get onto Joe, so he got onto me. 
And for whatever reason, he got incredibly upset and screaming and swearing at me and calling me, you stupid idiot, and a little bit more colourfully than that. And he got so upset, he actually knocked the phone off the hook. And then he called me back a minute or two later and started apologising. And I didn't really know what was going on. I was, I was like, why, why is he apologising? You know, this is on 23, 24. And then it, it twigged. I realised the reason he was apologising to me was he thought I'd hung up on him because he was him swearing at me. And I was so stupid and so naive. I said, look, Mr. Lustig, you know, I didn't hang up on you. I think you might have accidentally knocked the phone off the hook. He goes, ah, really? And then starts swearing at me again, you stupid (laughs) bastard. (laughs) So you sort of learned, that was a sort of a baptism of fire. And I I do remember, I mean, one thing that I did learn from my boss, from from Joe at ABL, and and it's absolutely true, it's staying with me today, all bullies are cowards. You know, it was really interesting when he thought that I'd hung up on him. Instead of being angry, he was instantly apologetic. And, you know, it's a real interesting insight for me around the importance, frankly, of standing up for yourself. We all know the next part. Paul co-founded Seek, roping in his brother Andrew, who's a management consultant, and their friend Matt Ruckman, the son of notable ABL client Irvin Ruckman, and their first eventual angel investor. But not everyone knows how Seek actually came about. I mean, it literally was a moment in time. And that was on the 16th of March, 1997. Sharon was six months pregnant with Jasmine, who's our second child. And we owned a, a sort of a small two-bedroom place. We're looking for a slightly larger place. And the way you look for a house in the newspaper is you look by suburb. C for Coburg or Cremorne or, or whatever. D for Dandenong. And so this particular house was in a neighbouring suburb to the one we were looking at. And because we weren't looking under the houses under that letter in the alphabet, we hadn't seen it till the day. I think actually my mum pointed out on the day of the auction. And so Sharon's six months pregnant. We go and see this house, literally turn up 20 minutes before the auction. We have a look around. Sharon's like kicking me, saying, let's bid, let's bid. And I was like, but we haven't seen this house. We've literally only spent 20 minutes looking and I don't think we should bid. And sort of standing there as the auctioneer is sort of, you know, is kind of going through the bids and conducting the auction and Sharon's sort of kicking my ankle saying, we should bid, we should bid. That was when the idea of what became Seek, but originally an online real estate site came into my head. And to some extent from that moment on, it felt inevitable that we'd start Seek. Was it an easy decision to lead ABL? I know that you were on partner track, you had a young family. The decision in the end became pretty easy, which was, am I going to have more regret if we pursue this business and it fails? Or am I going to have more regret if I don't pursue this business and spend the next 20, 30, 40 years saying, you know, what if, what would it have been like? Should I have done it? What would have happened? How would it have panned out? Yeah. It was very, very clear to me what the right decision was. Sharon, again, was amazingly supportive because the easy thing would have been for her to say, oh, go down the secure path. You know, we had two kids and a mortgage and all that usual stuff. Uh, I didn't actually resign. I asked for a leave of absence to go and sort of try to get funding for this idea. And I wanted to be really open and transparent with the partners. I mean, some of the people I are going to be approaching were clients of the firm and, and Irvin and Matt were clients of the firm who ended up backing us. And so I wanted to be really open and I sort of told them my idea and I wanted to take a few months leave of absence and that if it didn't work out, that I wanted my job back. And they were really good about it, really, really supportive. So we did a business plan sort of nights and weekends 
That took us about six months. When we finished that, we had conversations. As it turned out, we only ever had one serious conversation. The first people we chatted to were Irvin and Matt. And again, I don't think we realised at the time how fortunate we were that, you know, I'd built a good relationship with them. Matt was a bit frustrated, a bit sick of working with his dad and wanted to do some new things. And so it appealed to him personally. So it was kind of like incredibly fortuitous for us. It sort of all happened and came together. But it was very linear. Idea, business plan, funding, build website, go to market. It's not how you'd start a business now. The business was an online service that helped job seekers find open roles at companies. If you're in one of the 18 markets or so where Seek dominates, be that in Australia or Brazil, you've probably used the service yourself. But in 1997, the business was just paper. So I remember day one really well. Andrew had a slightly longer notice period than me at Booze. Matt, I think, was sick or something, but he didn't start that day. So day one, I started on my own. And I remember we are actually working out of Irvin's offices for the first, probably about the first four or six weeks before we moved into, into offices in St Kilda Junction. And I remember sort of walking in, had my briefcase, opened up my briefcase, literally took out the sort of the, it was called the spot then was the name of the, the idea. It ended up obviously becoming Seek, but it's still called the spot. So I took out the business plan for the spot, put it on my desk. And I, I remember then just this almost sort of overwhelming sense of like, oh my God, what do we do now? And it was a really, it was a really, really strange feeling um, and, and almost, yeah, almost just felt a little bit overwhelmed. And it's like, where do we start? What do I do first? This moment, looking into the great abyss and then leaping is what all founders experience at some point. And there's something kind of magical about that. In Paul's case, in the end, they did the simple stuff. I remember... You know, we went shopping the next day. I think we went to office work. So it was actually kind of quite cool, you know, buying some office chairs and some desks and stuff like that because that was kind of sort of tangible. You felt you'd achieve something. And with that, Seek, the business that started life with Sharon at the auction, burst from the page and into real life. Looking back on it now, what stays with you about the business? You know, the thing for us, given what we'd done in our backgrounds and stuff, the list of what we didn't know was really big. And there weren't a lot of peers for us to go to. I mean, there were people we knew who ran businesses we could go to, but sort of high growth internet startups. I mean, at that point, we literally knew no one. And so pretty much everything we, were, we were sort of had to work out from first principles. And as you can imagine, that was probably a little bit slower than it might have otherwise been. I mean, there was no concept of induction. I mean, I remember there was a woman, Kira Walker, who sort of joined us as sort of admin, PA, and I remember her, she didn't tell us this for a few months, but she told us a few months later, she said, she said, it was so awkward. I got home from work my first day and the first thing my husband says to me, how was the first day? And I said, yeah, it was good. And then he asked me like, what do they do? And she said, I don't really know what they do. And so there was just literally zero induction. I mean, it just hadn't, it hadn't occurred to us that like we needed to do things like that. I think it was a magical experience. And in some respects, it was, I would say, and I feel like I've been unbelievably blessed in my career, but in some respects, I was pointing out a period which was perhaps the most special, that first two or three years of building a, a business. But you also forget, I mean, there's a, you probably forget some of the pain along the way. You know, one of the things about a marketplace is you start with, in our case, in the area of jobs, you start with zero people looking for a job 
and you start with zero employers and recruitment firms placing ads on the site. And so you've got two challenges. I've got three. Basically, we've got two questions from recruitment firms that we're trying to pitch to or companies to, to place their jobs on Seek. It's like, you know, one is they don't know what the internet is. Secondly, like why Seek? And even then there were people like Monster.com or what was called the Monster Board, became Monster.com was a site called employment.com.au. So it was already some competition. We sort of came in and so you had to convince people like, you know, why the internet, why you guys, why seek? Mm. But then the last thing, of course, is, is like if I look for a job, if, I, if we attract a job seeker and there are no jobs there, then they're not going to have a very good experience. Or if I get a, someone to place a job ad and there are no job seekers looking in their location or for their type of job, then again, that's really you know, that's not a great experience for them. So marketplace businesses are hard to build. We felt very strongly long-term that online would replace print. But we also knew in the first year or two, people weren't going to stop spending the hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars a year they were spending on print advertising, give it up and say, yeah, we're going to, we're going to put it on C. So we used price as a lever. It was sort of a whatever it takes approach in terms of pricing. If we had to give it away, we'd give it away. And so we're very tactical in that sense. When did you feel like this was all working? I mean, the first week or two, literally there was two or three or four or five people applying for jobs. And of course, we didn't necessarily know who got placed in jobs because, you know, someone applies and they go to that employer, to the recruitment firm for an interview, then maybe they get replaced. But there's no, there's no specific feedback loop for us. We, you know, we're a media model, not a recruitment firm. We're not getting paid for placement. But as, as it so happened, there was, I reckon this was probably in our second or third week we got an email from a woman and I've forgotten her name, but she had applied for a job. One of our clients was a fashion recruitment firm called Fashion Careers. And they were looking for a sort of an office admin role. And this woman sent us an email, which was amazing. It was so nice saying, hey, I just wanted to let you know I got a job through Seek. And as far as we know, this was the first person who found a job through Seek. And so that was like so cool. You can imagine how excited we all were. And, you know, it was probably probably 20 of us in the business at that point, and everyone was so excited and just this, just this sense of elation that we kind of, there'd, there'd been a sort of tangible placement. I remember about a month or two months later, I was in Sydney and I had a meeting with Tim, who was the owner of Fashion Careers, and I was arriving there and I was really pumped up and excited because, of course, I knew this woman had placed a job. And actually, I met her, you know, as I was waiting at reception, I chatted and I introduced myself and I was feeling so great. And then I sat down with Tim, he said, this is hopeless. We're not using her anymore. I said, what do you mean? You've placed someone in your own organization. I said, yeah, other than her, we haven't placed anyone. It's hopeless. It's a waste of money. This is a complete waste of time. So that's a sort of a bit of a metaphor for the sort of the highs and lows of a startup. And, and again, something I try to remember because and put myself in the founder's shoes, the companies that we back and support and just other founders that we, that we interact with and, and hopefully help along the journey. Because the highs are really high, but the lows are very, very low. And resilience is obviously such an incredibly important attribute for founders. You were co-CEO at Seek for almost 14 years by the time you left. How did you learn about the role of the CEO? You know, to some extent, the role of the founder is to kind of lift the team up when everyone's feeling down or when you've, when you've had a loss or something's gone wrong. But also kind of, you know, in a gentle way, bringing everyone down to earth when we're sort of feeling bulletproof and everything seems to be going in our favour. Within a startup, and I was certainly guilty of this in the individual, but a startup collectively does a lot of catastrophizing. I remember in the first few days, good days were magical and those bad days were awful. 
but you intuitively understood that your job was trying to create a little bit more evenness around the good days and the bad days um, and just be pretty even and pretty calm. I think that was, a, that was an important aspect of the role. And then sort of creating a culture where everyone sort of felt like complete absence of politics. Um, no one felt like someone stepping on their turf. Anyone could talk to anyone in the company. I could. I mean, one of the things I loved most was sort of spending time with the team and customer in customer service who were really close to the coalface. I used to, you know, for a couple of hours every month, I'd double jack with them and listen in on calls and stuff to understand what clients were saying and what they were hearing and stuff. But that was, I think, again, an important part of the culture where there was a, just an absence of hopefully a fairly good absence of hierarchy. And what are your reflections on culture sense? We always used to say at Seek that, you know, strategy was a top-down thing, but culture was a bottom-up thing. And it was really important for us that there be a huge sense of ownership by the entire team in the culture of the organisation and setting the tone on a whole lot of things. And a lot of the best things that we did or a lot of mistakes we fixed for a product of people in the organisation just taking ownership and saying, hey, I want to run with this. So there is an element of sort of bottom-up, for want of a better term, but there absolutely is an element of top-down, which is, I think, by definition, culture is set pretty early and it becomes self-perpetuating because to some extent, you know, A, we often hire people that look and feel a little bit like us, but also people tap into a culture and behave in a certain way driven by that culture. I mean, use a, this is a really simplistic example, but if I'm in a city that is kind of pristine, if I'm a tourist and I'm walking around a city that's pristine and, you know, the parks are perfect and no one throws any rubbish then there's no way I'm going to throw any rubbish on the ground. You know, on the other hand, if it's a city where there's sort of litter everywhere, I'm probably not going to think twice. I sort of say, what difference does it make? I may as well chuck this old Coke can on the street as well. So I do think these sort of cultures, some extent culture is self-perpetuating. And I think the influence of founders in, in setting that culture, both explicitly and implicitly, yeah, is of course really, really important. You touched on hiring, which you spent, I think, close to about 20% of your time doing at Seek. Can you walk us through how you think about it now? I think for us, I mean, we used to think about it as a sort of two-dimensional thing. I now think about it as a three-dimensional thing. There's sort of three ways of thinking about candidates. One is values. I think it's really important to sort of understand that when you think about values, these are subjective things. It's not that people are good or people are bad. It's just that what are the things that are important to your organisation and how aligned are those individuals to the things that are important to your organisation? That's one attribute, is values alignment. The second attribute is sort of, I can't think of a better term, but sort of horsepower. You know, natural ability, raw potential, whether, and potential is different for different jobs. I mean, some jobs require a lot of creativity. Other jobs require amazing attention to detail. If you're in sales type roles, the ability to build relationships with people is obviously a lot more important than Maybe if you're a software engineer, for example. But, you know, what we'd call potential horsepower was, was the sort of, is the second attribute. And then the third attribute is experience. I think at Seek, particularly in the early years, we unashamedly put values ahead of experience or horsepower. I think it's really important that when you hire people, actually thinking about the need of the role, thinking about the people who are successful in your organisation, actually saying, well, being really conscious about it, being purposeful rather than kind of just sort of happening is, am I going to optimise for values alignment? Am I going to optimise for experience? My personal view is most organisations tend to optimise for experience. And I think that's often a mistake. I think they give too much weight to experience. And in some jobs, I mean, you're hiring a pilot. 
experience is pretty important. If a hospital is looking for a brain surgeon, experience is pretty important. But a lot of other roles, I, my personal bias has always been to optimise probably first and foremost values and secondly, horsepower for want of a better term. If I reflect on my hiring experience at Squarepeg, I'm so grateful that they anchor to mindset and not experience. <laughs> my exposure to VCs had been really limited. And though I'd read Brad Feld's book on venture deals, I was definitely no domain expert. Now that I'm in a VC, I'm privy to the backroom capital raising journeys of lots of founders and companies. And what I still found astounding is how unroutine every round is. The speed, the focus, the founders, and even the success stories, the ones that you see in the papers who've raised monster rounds, even they mostly have dealt with some chaos or existential risks because it's, it's kind of part of the deal. And even though we know Seek turned out to be this huge success story, the same was totally true for Paul. I might give the sort of the overall capital raising journey. So Matt and Irvin invested, they put one and a half million dollars in. It was at a, a it was at a pre-money valuation of one and a half million dollars. So I mean they bought half the business. It probably gives an indication <laughs> into how much valuation the change. That gave us money for about 12 or 13 months. In the end, we stretched out for about 18 months. And objectively, I mean the business was I think if I look back at the numbers, and I've done it once or twice, the business was really flying. You know, even though there was a lot of churn and dissatisfied customers. You know, we were really hustling and Matt was driving the sales, but collectively all of us were hustling really, really hard to build sales, build the revenue, build the number of users. Andrew put in place a number of important distribution partnerships with the likes of, you know, 9MSN and ultimately Yahoo, and which were really impactful and powerful. This is traveling really well. We then had to raise some money in late 99 and that was, we were looking to raise 2 million on a pre-money valuation of 5 million. So bearing in mind, you know, our post money on the seed round was, 3 million. Business was probably, I'm guessing, generating when we did that round about 150,000 of, of MRR, growing probably 20, 30% a month. Numbers were pretty impressive. And that round was really hard. I mean, even though dot com mania had really taken off in the US, it was still pretty early in Australia, believe it or not. And there were a few venture funds in Australia. There weren't many. We approached all of them. None of them came in at that point. And we really, it was just basically brick by brick bringing in a bunch of, you know, angel investors who supported us and eternally grateful to those people. And then that sort of when things sort of took off, you know, it, it had changed in the space of six months. We'd started to do some TV advertising. So people had started to hear of Seek, the whole dot-com thing took off. And then we raised another round in early 2000 and probably raised in total another six or seven or $8 million. Some venture funds came in. Macquarie had a venture arm. Champ Ventures had a venture arm. And then sort of early 2000, we're like, we're going to IPO. Now, we're a company at that point. You know, we were a company that was two and a half years old. We were a very young company in terms of our systems, our processes, our depth of capability, our ability to forecast. We were still probably two or three years away from profitability. I'm guessing at that point, revenue might have been, it might have been in the range of sort of 10 to 15 million ARR. So it actually grown really, really nicely. I mean, if you think about it, given how young the company was, it was, it was really impressive growth. But we were nowhere near ready for IPOing. But compared to a lot of other companies that are IPOing at that stage, we were like a veteran. And so, of course, that was the thing you did. So we were going to raise in the IPO. We'd appoint a Macquarie to lead it. We were going to raise about 20 or $30 million from memory at a pre-money valuation of, of $100 million. So it was, it was a big step up. It was a, like, as a founder, I was like, oh, my God. And then the dot-com crash happened about a week before we were due to sign the prospectus. 
On the verge of ringing the IPO bell on the Australian Stock Exchange, the global tech markets crashed. It was Armageddon. You know, it's hard to explain if you weren't there. I mean, the speed with which it went from euphoria to complete doom and gloom was just, it was just, you know, a sight to behold. It happened really quickly. Inability to raise capital, complete negativity around the internet. It was all hype. It was all rubbish. That lasted for probably two, two and a half years. And so, you know, A, we were lucky that we had a bit of money in the bank. We weren't sure if that was going to get us through. So it was unbelievably difficult to raise money then, but we were able to raise $3 million just to give us a little bit of a buffer post the dot-com crash. And that was from our existing investors and one or two new investors, but that was really hard. I mean, we went from like, what's the internet to you guys are geniuses to you guys are idiots. You know, and that was sort of, you know, the, the perception of anyone doing what we were doing in a, over a sort of an 18 month, two year period. So we raised that money and, you know, then I think we found the right balance between growth and profitability over that period. We obviously had a finite amount of money. We basically knew once we got that 3 million, we could not raise more. I mean, but markets, private markets were shut. There just weren't, I mean, we didn't really have, you know, even though we had these venture funds on the cap table, they didn't really think about stuff the way that, you know, VC funds hopefully would now. It's like, you know, these guys are going great. We've got to support our portfolio. We're there with them in the hard times, not just the good times. So we sort of basically understood that, you know, we'd got lucky with that 3 million. A few people had really supported us. Irvin was amazing. Irvin said, I'm putting in some money and he put in another two or $300,000 and that set the tone. I think because we had some money in the bank, that certainly made our position a lot better than some of our peers. You know, the fact that we still felt we needed to raise more money and that created a degree of stress and, and that wasn't easy. I mean, I used to keep, it, it just as an aside, I used to keep, I, I get a weekly cash number. And as it turns out, our low cash point was about $3,030,000. And so, you know, if we hadn't raised that $3 million, it would have been touch and go. Now, we would have made some different decisions, which probably would have been suboptimal decisions. So raising that money was, you know, whilst maybe technically we didn't need to do it, was incredibly important. You clearly had to make difficult choices during that period. What was a guiding principle? Culture was really important to us. So one of the things we were really proud of is we found ways to save a bunch of money, but that was without um, making anyone redundant. And as far as I know, seek still even and even now to this day long 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 after i left but i think you know i read the other week in in sort of the middle of the COVID crisis where obviously you know seek's been impacted significantly has made zero redundancies which is amazing reflection you know of the culture and so you know we were able to reduce costs didn't away without making redundancies and we got to profitability i think from memory it was about february or march 2003 the business got profitable, or maybe it was 2002. It was early 2002 or early 2003. First thing we did was we had a party. We called it the profit party. I think we made about $30,000 a month. The party cost us about thirty or $40,000. And so we didn't actually end up making a profit. Sure. But it was amazing. It was a lot of fun. It was down at the, um, I think it was down at the um, St Kilda Yacht Club. And uh, it was just a huge night. I mean, a, one of the big things the culture at Seek was around celebrating. And, um, and we certainly celebrated our profitability. That was a, that was a big deal. But again, I don't think, I, I think we found a pretty good balance between getting to profitability and focusing on growth. Obviously, we didn't do it perfectly. You never did. And there was some, a little bit of waxing and waning with, with the different cycles. But I think my, my, for the most part, we sort of stayed the course in terms of getting that balance right. Can we go back to shelving the IPO for a moment? 
still relatively rare for a technology founder in Australia to IPO. Rarer still, I'd say, for founders to attempt it twice, once just before a global crash in technology stocks. Can you talk about what that was like? It was hard. I mean, it was hard because, firstly, you've invested a huge amount of time and work. And secondly, kind of everything coming crashing down, we knew we were in for a, you know, I mean, to be honest, I, I think we moved on pretty quickly. And I, and I think we've seen that in founders in our portfolio at Square Peg who, who go through disappointment that, you know, they are great founders, are pretty resilient. Of course, you're disappointed. Of course, you're a bit chatted, but you move on quickly and you, and you start to you focus again on what needs to be done rather than worrying about what's happened. And we sort of completely, after about six months, we put IPO out of our mind and only started thinking about it again, sort of somewhat reluctantly in 2004. Between your first attempt at IPO in March 2000 and your second attempt was, was about 60 months, do you remember much of the IPO process itself? I remember that process. So that was sort of through March 2005. And I remember that month really, really well because it was, it was three weeks on the road. It is full on. It was about 70 meetings. You literally just say the same thing. You're like an actor because if you go off script, you actually confuse yourself. So you just repeat the same thing over and over again. It is remarkably boring saying the same thing 70 times. It is even more boring um, hearing Andrew or Matt or John say the same thing 70 times. You just, you just tune out. I mean, we, we made the most of it and had a lot of fun. But there was one particular story that sort of became legendary in Seek, which was Matt had this phrase when he was talking about our clients. He was talking about how diverse our clients were and how many small businesses and small recruitment firms and, a, you know, not having a concentrated client base is, is one of our real positives. But then he'd talk about the fact you say, you need to say, but don't think we don't deal with the big end of town where our clients include Coles and BHP, et cetera, et cetera. And I think Andrew sort of coming into the last meeting or second or third last meeting said to him, if you say big end of town one more time, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> anyway, as it turns out, we're in the literally the last meeting and I'm still a little bit embarrassed about this. There was a guy called Randall Jenicky at Schroeder who the meeting was with. And we're in there and we sort of knew at that point that there was enough demand and the IPO was in a good place and we'd had good feedback from the meetings. And so we probably sort of just relaxed a little bit too much. And sort of Matt, you know, sort of said something about, you know, the big end of town and sort of put a real emphasis on it. And we sort of giggled a little bit and this guy's looking at us. And then when Andrew gets up to his section, sort of apropos of nothing, he says something about the big end of town. And we completely, the four of us and and a guy called Mark Warburton from Macquarie, who was taking us on all the meetings and led the IPO, the five of us literally, were literally in uncontrollable laughter. I mean, Matt ran out of the room. He literally ran out of the room. Andrew was sort of hiding under his desk, under the desk, pretending he was getting something out of his briefcase. I had my face covered. This guy, Randall, understandably, was completely ashen-faced. It's like, what the hell is going on? And I still remember the email I sent him the next day. It started, it's, I think the first four, four or five words were, by way of explanation, not excuse, <laughs> dot, 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 and very, very apologising to him. We're going to skip forward here. In the six years since Seek IPO'd, Paula came to two decisions. One, it was one of the best teams he'd ever worked with. The journey had been magical, but ultimately, he wanted to step down. He felt like he needed a new challenge. And the second decision, which was in many ways unconnected to the first, was that he really wanted to work with founders again, helping them from the earliest days, investing money, and building the kind of venture capital firm that he hoped to exist in the world. So you call it Square Peg. What's that about? 
I mean, it was funny because Seek, there was, we always argued about who came up with the name Seek. And there's, I think to this day is a debate. At, at Square Peg, there's no debate. It was Marav Block, who was when we started out, Marav was working with us sort of part-time, doing a couple of days a week with us. Huge mistake of ours not to get Marav to join us full-time. But she came up with the name. The inspiration was the extraordinary Apple ad. I think maybe one of the most beautiful ads ever shot. Uh, I think it's called Think Different. It talks about the outliers, the outcasts, um, and it shows people like, you know, Amelia Earhart and, and Gandhi and, and Martin Luther King and people who are criticised or persecuted or ostracised and has a line in the ad about they are the round pegs in the square holes. And we decided square peg because square peg seems to be slightly more common usage. And that's what you were looking for? Yeah, it's exactly what we're looking for. We're looking for the outliers. And people have just got these special attributes to build very, very successful businesses. Can we talk about the mindset shift needed to move from being a founder to being an investor? It's a really important question. I don't think I think about it enough um, because it is a very, very, very different role. When I was at Seek, I was, I was sort of mono-focused. Um, I didn't even really understand that much that was happening with technology trends because you're just... You're so focused on, on building the product. You're so focused on what clients want. You're so focused on hiring. You're so focused on goal setting for the year and all that sort of stuff. Now getting the ability to sort of learn about so many different business models, what's happening in terms of technology. I mean, they're both very special experiences, but very, very different. One of the things about being a founder is you sort of get a bit of an instant gratification, even though it's a long journey. Every day you are seeing you know, the progress and the results and the failures and the, the challenges and the problems. As an investor, you're a little bit one step removed. And so you kind of, it's a, it's a very long period between investing and exiting. I mean, the whole idea, it's a long period. We want to be involved in these companies for a long time. So the rhythm is very, very different. I would say the other thing is, is as a founder or in an, any sort of an operating role, you make a large number of decisions. Most of them aren't very important decisions. Some of them are unbelievably important, but most of them aren't very important. Every day, you, I mean, you're making dozens of decisions a day, hundreds maybe. As an organisation, you're probably making thousands of decisions. As an investor, you make very, very few decisions, but they're really, really important decisions. You're defined by those decisions. You're defined by the mistakes you make. You know, the investing in a company that doesn't pan out the way you hope or expect is obviously a little bit painful, but much, much more painful. You know, much more painful is missing out, not investing in a company that ends up becoming really, really successful. I'm curious what else you think is important when it comes to being a good investor? As a VC, I think you learn is just the importance of boldness. I mean, we're, we're, looking, we're looking for outliers. When you put in that construct, one of the things that's become really clear to us over the last, over the last few years is that when we think about investment opportunities, having all of us sit around and say, yeah, we really like this company is much, much less of a signal than one or two people like literally screaming, standing up on the table saying, you don't get it, you're idiots, we need to make this investment. We, we're much more looking for one or two or three or four of us having real conviction around an opportunity rather than having consensus. And again, I think it's a nature of what we do. But if I think of some of the most successful investments of the, of the current era, so use, a, use an Airbnb as an example. Airbnb is such a counterintuitive investment. Brian Chesky, I think, did everyone a really big favour. When he published, he did it anonymously and he wasn't trying to make fun of anyone, but he published rejection and emails that he got from a bunch of VCs. One of the questions I've asked myself is, 
you know, if we were in the fortunate position that we'd got pitched by Airbnb, would, would we have been one of the 50 who'd said no or would we have been one of the two or three who'd said yes? Um, because often the most exciting opportunities are really actually quite counterintuitive and you have to really think quite differently. And there is no way seven or eight people in an investment team are all going to say, let's do Airbnb. But maybe, maybe you're going to have one person who just screams and shouts and says, you've got to do this. And so that's really, really important part of our process. So the square peg investment process is unusual in that it only requires two votes from the team to approve an investment. More commonly, you need consensus or at least a majority of voting members to approve an investment. The theory here is that not only does it let the team be bold, as Paul mentioned, but that it provides space for dissent, surfacing objections about the market or the product or the team really early. The concept being that this leads to a more robust decision, even if the whole team didn't end up coming around. It's actually one of my favorite things about the Squarepeg team, which is that we argue really well. Hey, Paul, I want to go back and talk about some of the attributes that we see so frequently in founders that we work with. And the question that we probably get asked the most, which is, what are you looking for? We're looking for potential. A big part of the judgment we're making when we meet founders, and it's such a hard thing to do, and it's why we want to meet founders over a long period of time, not just at a point in time, is we're looking for growth in founders. And so, you know, a founder who's pretty green, pretty inexperienced, a bit naive, but just such an enthusiasm to learn, such an openness, very, very high level of horsepower, if if you like, in terms of understanding concepts and thinking and learning. That founder is much more exciting for us than a founder who's kind of got all of the attributes but may not grow as much. Can you give us an example? Healthmatch is an example. You know, Minori is a sole founder. She'd never really had a job before. She'd studied medicine. She'd had some internships. We just felt that she had this amazing capacity to grow and develop. She's just got this thirst for knowledge. She's got this amazing openness, but it's combined with a decisiveness and a willingness to make decisions. Because if you're too open, just listening to what people tell you, but you've actually got to make calls, make decisions. And she's got this amazing ability to listen, take on board disparate views, wherever they come from, make decisions, iterate, learn, grow. And so we're less than a year into that relationship. But I think, you know, the progress you've seen in that organisation and her as an individual has been really, really exciting. We see it the same in, in Climacell as another good example. We see in Athena, albeit Nathan and Michael were much more experienced founders than some of our other founders when, the, when they got started. You just see how these founders have grown enormously over a short period of time. Do you think being a founder yourself helps or hinders you as an investor? I think there are some advantages and some disadvantages. The advantages are pretty obvious. I mean, I think firstly, you know, you relate to the founders really well and and they probably relate to you. Other things being equal, they relate to you more easily than someone who may not be a founder. So there's a sort of a a shared language and, and stuff like that. The disadvantage is you can, it's very easy to, and I hopefully do an okay job of avoiding this, but it's very easy to kind of sort of say, oh, this is how you build a company or this is how you build a marketing team or this is what a go-to-market strategy looks like or this is how you iterate on product. When every company story is different and every company story is unique, so hopefully do an okay job. As much as we do say there are certain attributes that are common to founders, so you know, resilience being one and real passion for solving a, a particular problem and vision, 
and willingness to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. There are certain attributes we think are common to founders. What we do is about finding outliers. And by definition, outliers are all really, really different. And so you've got to, it's really important to avoid preconceived biases. Um, unconscious bias is really a big deal in terms of what we do. I mean, I think even more so than, than in hiring people. It's like, some founders just look like they come from central casting. Yeah, right. And so, you know, and it's really important not to kind of put those folks on a pedestal because otherwise you're just going to end up with a lot of people who look like you, whether that's age or gender or way of thinking about things and stuff like that. We've almost wrapped today's conversation, but I couldn't finish without mentioning something slightly more personal about Paul. In addition to building Seek and SquarePeg, Paul has been involved in a whole host of extracurricular activities. He was on the board of West Farmers for years. He's the current AFL commissioner, and he's advised the government on technology policy. And those are just the ones I know about. He often speaks with such gratitude for Australia and his family and his career. And I wonder if knowing where that comes from helps explain something about Paul. I think obviously my mum's story is, is, you know, particularly impactful, you know, sort of the likelihood of being born as, you know, as a Jew in Poland in 1939 and surviving is kind of like, you know, probably one in a thousand. It's a very, very low likelihood. And her story is an amazing story. And you obviously become more aware of it as, as you get older. You know, we didn't grow up in a household where that was kind of like the dominant theme. And it, was, it wasn't like that was just, it permeated everything that we did. But I think as you get older, you become conscious of that. And you do have a, a great sense of firstly, you know, wanting to understand but secondly, also just feeling a great sense of good fortune. I mean, this is an amazing. Anyone who, who grows up in Australia, I think we're, we're incredibly lucky. This country's far from perfect. There's a lot of things that could be better about it, but we're really, really lucky to live here. And I think I was perhaps more conscious of it than perhaps peers would have been who maybe just, you know, to some extent, of course, you take it for granted if that's the, if that's the sort of the family story. You were born in Australia. Your parents were born in Australia. You perhaps take it a little bit more for granted what, a, what an amazing country this is. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to stay in touch, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you want to help, leave us a five-star review. Otherwise, find us in all the regular places. Have a great week. Bye.